All right, we are uh, diving into a summer series, jokey joke, uh, summer series into also a joke, uh, into 1 Timothy. Uh, it'll be about a nine-week series, and by about a nine-week series, I mean it'll be a nine-week series uh, that will, Lord willing, we're praying, be our last series in this building uh, before we go back home. And hopefully we don't make it through the entire series before we go back to our uh, our building, Six Way Aurora, but we'll talk more about that at the members' meeting. All right? Uh, the theme of this series, it's been titled Household of God, uh, where Timothy just kind of walks through the church, what the church is meant uh, to be like. And he opens the letter um, talking about a gospel identity, a gospel identity. So let's, uh, let's get started. Uh, Stephen Covey is an author, or was uh, an author, uh, professor, speaker. He's probably best known for his book, uh, Seven, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, in, in the Harvard Business Review, in an article he wrote on management, he, he's got some really, uh, not that I read Harvard Business Review, don't let me mislead you, all right, I'm not that smart. Uh, but in there, he's got this uh, really brilliant insight into humanity. It's simple, but it's brilliant. Uh, this, is what he, um, this is what he says specifically about how we form identity, uh, identity being meaning, worth, value. He says this, whether people learn it from their family, school, or athletics, Many people establish an identity by comparing themselves with others. So let's read that again. Many people establish an identity by comparing themselves with others. So here, here's what, what Covey looked at. So he just looked out at humanity. This is this is secular author um, looking at the world, saying, how does the world work? And he noticed that men and women, we form meaning, we form identity uh, in comparison to one another, and we find it in comparison to one another. And underneath this observation, uh, underneath this observation that Covey has of humanity is an innate foundational question that you were born asking. It's the question of who am I? It is a fundamental, a fundamental foundational question that everyone in this room was born asking, who am, who am I? And Paul's writing this letter to Timothy because false teachers came into the church. False teachers came into the church and they were asking the question, who am I? And they were answering it in a way that was misleading, that was distorting the scriptures because there's two ways to answer this question. One way gives you an identity by comparison, right? An identity by who I am relative to you. The other way gives you a gospel identity. And so we're going to see um, Paul unpacking a gospel identity here in this text. Verse 1. And it's not on the surface. The, the question they're asking is not on the surface. And so we'll, we'll see it when we get to it. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, one, one of my favorite things in the scriptures, one of my favorite things in the scriptures is the introductions to the letters. And so I'm about to do something I don't want y'all to ever do, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, for the sake of time, move on. I don't want you to ever do that, right? I want you, when you read an introduction, introductions in the scriptures are rich with theology and emotion. For example, in this little introduction right here, do you notice it calls God our Savior? That he talks about our Savior, calls the Father our Savior. Mic drop, right there. For the second time, I'm going to keep going. 
Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now this is, I've already mentioned it, but this is why the letter to, to 1 Timothy was written. It was written because there was a church in Ephesus that got planted. This church in Ephesus that was planted at some point after it was planted, false teachers came in. And now Paul is saying to Timothy, go and stay there. Go and stay there to counter the false teachers. And in, um, really, uh, Paul is, is a incredible case study in the Bible. If you, uh, I know I say this a lot, but I'm going to say this one again. If you're in here and you feel like, man, I just don't know that I belong. Like, I don't know that I belong in this room right now. You need to know about the life of Paul. Paul was a man who murdered Christians who ended up writing much of the New Testament. If the grace of God is for Paul, it's for you. It's for every one of us in this room. But Paul saying to Timothy, hey, you go, you, you go and you counter these false teachers. And in a typical Paul style, in many of his letters, if he's writing to respond to false teaching, he wastes no time. Like he, I mean, he, he is not a, uh, hey, I get it, you know, you kind of think this, you think, I understand, let's just kind of have a, you know, an adult beverage and talk about it. He just is a direct man when it comes to false teaching. And in typical style, he gets right after it up front in the letter. In verse 4, he takes us into the content of their teaching. Verse 4, so charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship of God, from, stewardship from God that is by faith. And so the two things he says in here, right, that they're devoting themselves to, what does he say? Myths, endless genealogies. The myth is, think, fable of God. Fable of, it's just... It's just what Paul thinks of the content of their teaching. All right? it's, a, it's a nonsense fable. And then he says, endless genealogies. And the endless genealogies, this is where Paul begins to take us into the content of the teaching of the false teachers. And it says, well, not it says, but it said um, that they were utilizing these genealogies. Because listen, in, in, in first century Judaism, genealogies played a, uh, a pretty particular role. It played a key kind of societal, social role that, that you could look into your genealogy. They would look into the scriptures even and that they would see a genealogy looking for a bloodline, looking for um, to establish a, um, I belong to this tribe or I belong to this family name. Now, here's why sometimes the Bible disconnects a little bit, but we need to understand the Bible. In our culture, uh, we, we get very little identity, very little meaning from our last name, right? So uh, I've been here 10 months now, and I've talked to all of you almost, uh, and I've said, man, tell me about yourself. Uh, not one of you has said, I'm a Barker, or I'm a, well, not that you would say that, that's my last name, but I'm a whatever you fill in your last name. No one has ever said that. I've yet to have anyone say that to me. Now, if my son says that, I'd be one proud man. He's not going to say that. Uh, but if he did, I'd be in. But here's what you do say. Uh, I, I say, man, tell me about yourself. And you say, I went to A&M. No, no, do not whoop in here, all right? Because let me tell you something I don't get. I don't get, like, burying a dog, facing the goalpost, and being proud of that. It doesn't make any sense to me, all right? I'm... Okay, I didn't feel like I just offended all of you in here. Um, I'm not pro AM, I'm not anti AM, I just don't get AM, alright? But whatever. But you say to me, I went to AM, or 
I went to Florida, or you say, I'm a lawyer, or you say, I'm married, or you say, I have kids. No one has ever said, I have my last name. You, some of you have said to me, I'm an Apple guy. <laughs> I don't get that one either, but you said it, all right? <laughs> no one has ever said to me, I'm a barker. No one has ever said But to understand the Bible, you have to understand their culture. When you look into the Bible for a lineage, when they were doing this, when they were looking into these genealogies, they were asking the question, who am I? That was their equivalent of I'm an Aggie or I'm a, you name it. That was them asking the question, who am I? That was them looking for identity. That was them looking for meaning, purpose. And like I said, we, we don't use endless genealogies, but we do use work. Right, we do use, I'm a lawyer, I'm a, you name it, I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, you, you pick it, we use it, we, we use family, right, I'm pregnant, I'm a husband, I'm a spouse, I'm a whatever, we, we use our circumstances. This is one I think that is incredibly prevalent in our, in our community, our, our little family right here. Uh, we use life circumstances to create identity for us, right, so we say, I'm single. Or I'm married. Or I'm sick. One of the one of the greatest temptations I've I've had in my life. Uh, I, if you're new to, to Sojourn, uh, a couple of years ago I had an exceptionally minor cancer. I have a knife wound on my neck. I say I got stabbed by a 40 year old white guy who's a surgeon in downtown Dallas. <laughs> Some of y'all just got that. Um, and in that, in that window of time, I, I, I found this incredible temptation to find meaning and identity in sickness. What was I doing? I was looking to circumstance, trying to find meaning and identity and purpose for my life. It, all of us do. All of us do it. And if you want to know, uh, if you want to know what's, what's the who am I answer to your life, ask yourself this. Ask yourself this. What's the one thing I want people to know about me? What's that, what's that one thing? Well, there's a lot of things you can know about me. What's the one thing? I had a friend in Dallas. Uh, we lived in Dallas for eight years. Uh, I had a friend in Dallas named Don Debs. Incredible guy. I loved Don. My, my wife loved Don. Don was in his 40s, uh, stable in, uh, in the community there in, uh, in Dallas. He's passed away of brain cancer since then. I don't know if it was brain cancer, actually. It was, it was cancer. Uh, and uh, Don had a lot, of, a lot of dinners with my family, a lot of, a lot of uh, Uncle, Uncle Tony's, I think was the name of the Mexican restaurant we would go to with my wife and kids. It was, uh, we, we loved it, Don. One time I said to Don, I said, hey, Don, what's the, what's the one thing you want people to know about you? And he said that I'm gay. And I said, what, why, Don, why would you want them to know that? And his answer, it's who I am. It's who I am. What, what is the thing that you would answer that question with where you say, it's who I am? That's your answer. That's driving identity in your life. Paul knew this was no different for the first century uh, church. Um, he knew that there was misplaced identity that they were being led into. And he also knew that there was a way to look into the Old Testament. There was a way to look into the scriptures and to look at life and to see a genealogy see a genealogy that didn't lead to an identity of who 
comparison, a flimsy, flippid identity of comparison, but there was a way to look into the scriptures and to see a genealogy that led to a concrete gospel identity. And he's already said it. It was in verse 4. It's in this little phrase, stewardship from God. Stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, the, the, the stewardship from God, this phrase is used uh, two other times in the scriptures. And so if we want to understand what this stewardship from God is, we, we let the Bible define the Bible. It's kind of a, a basic DNA. How do you interpret the scriptures? You let the scriptures interpret the scriptures, right? And so uh, both times it's used pretty much the same. And so we're going to pick Ephesians 3 and um, read through this and let this tell us what this stewardship from God in Timothy is. Verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God, of God's grace. Now, in the, in the Greek text, it's the same wording, same stewardship, same God. Stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. All right, so what is the stewardship? Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. Other generations, that's Old Testament. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, the mystery is that. Listen to this. So desperately want verse 6. The grace of God in verse 6 to repeat. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The stewardship of God is that you can look into the Old Testament and you can see the mystery of Christ that was revealed to the generations, that grace will be brought to the Gentiles. This is the stewardship of God, the grace of God in Christ Jesus found in this unfolding lineage that led to Christ. That's why Romans 9.5 says that from Israel, from Israel, according to the flesh, is the Christ. That's why, have you ever, have you ever noticed um, the Bible's not opposed to genealogies, right? So how does Matthew 1 begin? It begins with a genealogy. But where does that genealogy terminate? What does it unfold into? It unfolds into Christ. We look into the scriptures so that we can see in Christ. And this is what Paul was wanting for the church in Ephesus. It's what I think he wants for us. That, we, that when we look into the Bible, this is... I mean, if you want to learn how to interpret the scriptures, you have to know this. The scriptures are incredibly practical, incredibly applicable to our lives. Um, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the Old Testament and what happened to Israel in such a way that it would lead us away from the idolatry that led them down the roads that it led them down. But here's the first question that we don't ask. When we look at the scriptures, we don't ask, who am I first? We look into the scriptures and we say, who is Jesus? Who is God? That's the first question we ask when we look into the scriptures. And when we do, when it is, when it's the first question we ask, we see that Christ had an identity. Christ had an identity as the promised Savior, as a, as a son doing his Father's will. But he had an identity in his lineage to the Father. And when you are in Christ, when you're in Christ, his identity becomes your identity. 
when you, when verse 6 from Ephesians has gripped you in the grace of God in Christ, you be become this heir of Christ. When you are in Christ, his identity becomes your identity. And this stewardship that we receive by faith, from faith, through faith, Rankin Wilborn, wonderful, I've mentioned it before to you guys, incredible preacher out in L.A. No one knows about him in our strand, but I, I think one of the great gifts to the church, a great gift to my soul, I, it's really the one guy that I podcast you know, with any kind of consistency. And so let me, he said, let me give you a definition of faith. Finding your identity in Christ. You, you want to define what faith is? It's finding your identity in Christ. And then verse 5, what does it look like? How do we receive this identity? What, what does it look like for this faith to be put on display? Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what does identity in Christ look like? It looks like love. Love makes faith visible. It makes our identity in Christ visible. But here's the thing. It's not any love, right? Because all of us love someone or something. Every one of us in this room. There's no one in this room devoid of love. Right? Now some of you are like, yeah, you don't know my childhood. Okay. You, there's no one in here who hasn't been loved by someone who doesn't love, who doesn't love someone or something. Every one of us. The question is not, do you love? The question is, what's the source of your love? And Paul gives these three qualifiers, pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. These are the, um, the, the internal makeup of genuine belief. The internal DNA, if you will, of genuine belief. Good conscience, pure heart, sincere faith. And because the stewardship is by faith, from faith, and he bookends it with sincere faith, I, I want to glance into uh, this, this, this word, sincere. It means integrity, authentic. It, it's that in your faith, there's a complete lack of deception. There's a complete lack of deception in your faith. It, it means that you genuinely believe what you say you believe. And I think this is probably uh, our, our biggest danger. Uh, our, our biggest danger in our context, right, in our Western American context, is that we can say that we have faith, but it not be a sincere faith. Right? That we, we, we can say, I believe, but not actually believe. I, I think that one of one of the great dangers in our context is that we can have enough church in our life to think that we don't need Jesus. I think that we can have enough church in our life to think that we don't need Jesus. And this should be, listen there, this should be a warning to all of us. This should be something that resonates with us. It should resonate with me. I should hear that. I should sit here and go, I need to be on guard. That needs to be a warning to me. The scriptures say that we're redeemed and reconciled if we hold fast till the end, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That we should hear this warning that Paul would lay out for us. It should be a heart check to all of us. Verse 6, let's keep going. If it's not a heart check to all of us, we're in danger of falling into the category of people in verse 6. Certain persons, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in a vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make confident <coughs> assertions. 
Often in a church, it's just kind of, I think what Cray has a song about this, right? Doesn't he? About you, know, you say anything authoritatively and we believe it these days, right? That, it's not new. Right? It's not new. This is a first century problem. That makes confident assertions sound believable without knowing anything about what it is that we're talking about. Some of you are like, amen. And some of you are like, that's ouch. That's me right there. We have to remember the original question. The original question these false teachers are asking. They're looking in. They're asking, who am I? And now he, he moves on from genealogies. And now he's, he's holding up the law. These false teachers holding up the law, the Old Testament law, and saying, do you compare? Like, do you live up? Here is a moral standard. Do you live by this? So either identity, law keeper, or law breaker, saying you're one of them. And if you think that the Bible is primarily a moral code, or you think the Bible is primarily a moral code, primarily about live this way, don't live this way, do this, or don't do this, here's what's going to happen to you. You are going to create a moral standard that you can't live up to. And then you're going to expect everyone around you to live up to it. And you're going to have this moral standard that you don't live up to that you crush the people around you with. It's going to happen. And by the way, this is not a religious issue. This is, this is a cultural issue. Stephen Colbert, an example. I just want to show it to you. At Wake Forest graduation. And I'm, I'm sure Stephen Colbert is hilarious. I'm not really a, uh, I'm more of a Jay Leno to Jimmy Fallon kind of guy. And so... I guess he's funny. I don't know. But this is listen to what he said at, at Wake Forest graduation. One thing you need to know, one thing you need is your own set of standards. What is nice about your own standards is you fill out your own report card. You're your own professor now. So be an easy grader. Grade yourself on a curve. So I hope you have the courage. Listen to this. It's just cultural observations. So I hope you have the courage to find for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And then, please, expect as much from the world around you. Try to make the world good according to your own standards. So what is he saying? He's saying the same thing that the teachers in the first century were saying. They were saying, use a moral code, find a moral code, be easy on yourself, but expect everyone else to live up to it. It's crushing. It's crushing for you. It's crushing for the people around you. This is not a religious issue. This is a human issue. And it's why Paul, in chapter 4, is going to call the false teachers insincere, right? Remember, have a sincere faith. And in chapter 4, he's going to say they're insincere. If you want to know another, another translation of the word insincere, it's hypocrite. Paul calls them hypocrites. He says that the heart of these false teachers is a real hypocrisy. Using the Bible to set a standard that they don't live up to. And so here's the question, right? If, if the law, if, if the scriptures give this moral code uh, that they can't live up to, that no one can live up to, is the law useful? Like, why the law? Verse 8, he begins to answer that. It says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what does it mean to use it lawfully? If it's used lawfully. The law has uh, two primary functions, right? We've, we've talked about this one a lot. Reveal sin and reveal Jesus. The law reveals sin, it reveals Christ. Best illustration I've ever heard, um, I know also I've shared this before, best illustration I've ever heard on the role of the law is comparing the law to an MRI machine. Right? You, you have something wrong with you, you go in for an MRI uh, scan, an MRI machine, all it does is reveal the problem. 
right? You've got a brain tumor, it goes in and it reveals the tumor. But the MRI machine is powerless to do anything about it. It's powerless to change, it's powerless to heal. And this is the danger of identity by comparison. The danger of identity by comparison is that we take something, we take a moral code that has no power to heal what's broken inside of us. And we try to use that to heal us by comparing ourselves with one another. All right, so we, we take what's broken in us because we don't want to feel broken. We compare ourselves to one another. We, we take this moral standard. We say, I'm doing better the standard than that person is. That's not healing you. All it's doing is creating an illusion for you to live under. It's just giving a few hours to feel good about yourself. What happens when you wake up the next day? You're still you. Right? You're not them. Your problems are still there. They don't go away because you compare yourself to other people. This is what these false teachers were trying to lead them to do, was use this standard. Compare themselves to one another. Find identity and meaning in how they do compared to others. Has no power to heal you. Has no power to take the hurt in your life away. None whatsoever. So what does the law do? That's in verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and listen, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here we have the law revealing sin, revealing Christ, revealing this category of sin, revealing the gospel of the glory of God. Paul gives this really long list that included lying to murder. That in and of itself could be a sermon by itself right there. And he ends with what it's contrary so the law reveals this long category of sin. And then he says, whatever is contrary, and I expected him to say, to morality. But he doesn't. He says, to sound doctrine. Side note, for Paul, there's no dichotomy between what you believe and, what, and, and, and how you behave. Right? You say, I believe this and I live like this. Paul's going to say that you don't believe this. It should be, I mean, you want a gospel challenge in your life right there? Look in the mirror with that. It says this doctrine, this doctrine that is in accord with the gospel because the law reveals the gospel. The law makes our need for grace visible. It makes our need for grace evident and tangible in our lives. And so all of us in this room, all of us in this room have two choices. Right? We, we can follow the leading of the false teachers. We, we can pursue an identity by comparison. Right? We, we can keep pursuing identity in who I am, what I do, where I went to school, how I live up to the moral standard I think God wants me to have. We compare ourselves to one another, make ourselves feel better about ourselves, or two. Or we can pursue an identity, a 
a gospel identity, an identity in who Christ is and what Christ has done. Because here's the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross is that all of your failings to live up to the law are fulfilled by Christ in his life and in his death. And because of what Christ has done, we can have a received identity, an identity in him where his identity becomes our identity. It's your choice. One, one, you live under the constant weight of what people think of you. One, you live under a consistent weight of what people think of you. Or the other, you live under the freedom of what Christ has done for you. It's your choice. And so we've titled the series, the series in uh, Timothy, we've titled it The Household of God. Because it's within this household, it's within this household that Paul is going to describe in 1 Timothy that a gospel identity is both formed and fostered. And so we're going we're gonna to take off, we're going to look into the foundation, right? The, the foundation where our gospel identity gets formed. And then from there, he's going to build some walls. We're going to talk about the structure of our house because it's within that structure that our gospel identity gets fostered. That we might, that we might as a people, as a community of men and women, that we might pursue a received identity, that we might pursue a gospel identity, and might learn to live the freedom of it. Let's pray.